Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Today is a big day for many high school seniors since this uh, this is coming out on December 15th. A lot of you are hearing or have heard very recently from colleges. If so, I hope you've received good news. And either way, treat yourself to some Ben and Jerry's ice cream or cheesecake or whatever your treat is. Um, And get excited about what your current options are. So, um, you know, know that there are going to be good things coming your way. Do not stress if you're one of the students who heard some bad news, because there will be good news, too. On our second segment, um, Tova Javits and I will actually be discussing the various scenarios of early action, early decision, etc., and what to do now that you have heard. For the third segment, I'll be speaking with Anne Corvo, Director of International Admissions at Boston University, about their supplemental questions for their common application and what the university offers to undergrads in general. But first, and those of you who are watching um, this on YouTube or on the video, um, you see that I'm talking to Michelle Clifton, college finance expert here at College Coach, about federal student loan repayment updates and options. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Sally. So this hasn't been fraught at all. I mean, it's like so no, it's straightforward. Been pretty boring year. Yeah, yeah. Like completely <laughs> boring about what's happening with student loans. Oh, so I wish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I know. I mean, every time uh, people talk about it, I'm like, well, we'll give you the update when we know. Yep, <laughs> or exactly. I should say not me, but you and your team. So <laughs> right. Yeah, so I we I think most of us heard those of us who pay any attention at all heard about the loan payment pause being extended again. So let's go ahead and start there. Yeah, that's a good place to start. So we were supposed to be gearing up for loans to actually finally go into repayment after December 31st. Um, but since that one time student loan debt relief is still blocked by the courts, the administrative forbearance or what they often refer to as the loan pause has been extended again for, I think it's the eighth time at this point. Um, and this time it's not as clear of a timeline. It's not a, a specific date, so to speak. So they're saying that loans will enter repayment 60 days after the Department of Ed is able to implement the debt relief or if they haven't resolved it by June 30th of 2023, then payments will resume 60 days after that, which will bring us to late August of 2023. So it sounds like the latest will be late August. Yes, as of now, yep. Okay, so everybody should be thinking about that. Um, Any sort of updates in general on it, on who's gonna get relief, who's not gonna get relief, et cetera? Yeah, so the, the overall relief is completely blocked right now. Still, there's no applications that can be submitted at this point. Um, but it was announced on December 1st that the Supreme Court will hear the arguments um, based on the courts um, in February, and the decision is expected in June. So um, just for a little flavor, the Department of Education has stated that 26 million borrowers applied for the debt relief, and 16 million were supposedly approved before the program was blocked. Now, now, of course, no debt relief has been processed through this program, um, so the, but that's a lot of folks still holding out hope um, that some of their loans will be um, forgiven. 
Oh, listen, my my partner's daughter is one of them. And yeah. it would make a big difference in her life if Absolutely. even 10,000 could be uh, could be forgiven. Um, so I, I'm 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 I am personally on the side of pulling for that um, to happen. So. All right. And I know there's something called the PSLF. I'm going to let you explain what that is and that the limited waiver for the PSLF ended back in October or did that get extended to? Yeah, that's a great question. So the limited PSLF waiver did expire as it was expected to on October 31st, and it wasn't extended. Um, So just a little background, this was an opportunity for borrowers who were working towards public service loan forgiveness, but were in the wrong repayment plan because the program is very confusing. It was a one-year opportunity to try to make the program better. Um, And it did for a lot of people, um, but it did expire. However, going forward, there's going to be another one-time opportunity for borrowers who are working towards either public service loan forgiveness or income-driven repayment forgiveness. And so let me explain what both of those are um, really fast. So public service loan forgiveness, um, most often referred to as PSLF, is for borrowers who work full-time for either a government or a not-for-profit organization and make payments under certain repayment plans on their federal direct loans. Now, after 120 months of payments or 10 years, any remaining balance is forgiven. So it sounds maybe fairly easy, but there's a lot of pieces to the program. And then on the other side, there's also income-driven repayment forgiveness or IDR forgiveness. Now, this is for um, folks who don't work for qualifying employers for PSLF, but are using income-driven repayment plans, so basically reducing their monthly payments um, through an income-driven plan based on their income, but for a long period of time. So instead of just being in repayment forever on their loans, it gives them the opportunity to get forgiveness after either 20 or 25 years, depending on the plan. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with IDR forgiveness is that there's been no place where borrowers could track their progress on this. So I know I've been working with borrowers for a while now where you know, of X amount of months towards the required amount. So um, it also seems that servicers may have not been tracking this either because this past April, the Department of Education announced a one-time account adjustment where they're going to go back and they're going to count all time that anyone has been in repayment, regardless of plan. They don't have to be, have been under an income-driven plan. It could be any time they've been in repayment. And they're going to count that going forward as months towards IDR forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, they're going to start tracking this on studentaid.gov. So a borrower can log into their studentaid.gov account and see how many payments they have towards um, the required for IDR forgiveness. And that'll start on in um, July of 2023. Mm I think that's great. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I've read that often um, people have thought they were in a program and then it turned out that some little piece of red tape was off, Oh, absolutely! even though they've been working in good faith towards fulfilling their part of this. Um, the other thing that I've read is, and I think it's important for people to know who feel like this might be an unfair advantage, is that often people in these loans have uh, or have been have fully repaid the principal oh, yeah. many times over, basically, but the interest yep. rates are just so unfavorable that they can't get out from under it. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the income-driven plans can 
can lead to that too. If your if your payments are low based on your income and you're not even covering the interest that's accruing, your loan is just growing over time. So it's you're never going to get out of that if there's no forgiveness eventually. Yeah, I have so, to say I feel so grateful for my loans. I borrowed money to go to college, but it was back then it was called Stafford loans. The interest rates weren't low by today's metric, but I still managed to pay them off in ten years because it was right. not a crazy amount. It was not you know like. So, um, yeah, my heart goes out to the people buried under these loans and kind of not in a position to pay them back. So Exactly, exactly. So not only are they going to count time and repayment, but they're also counting a couple other things, too. So um, I'm assuming this is because of reporting issues, but they're also going to count deferments prior to 2013 mm-hmm. um, as time in repayment, except for in-school deferment doesn't count. And then they're also going to make up what what they're calling forbearance steering. So what they've said is that servicers have been known in the past as encouraging borrowers to choose forbearance, which is basically taking time off from paying your loans and not getting credit towards anything. So your interest is accruing, your loans growing, um, and where they could have been, you know, guiding them to use an income driven plan um, during mm-hmm. that time so that they would make progress towards forgiveness. So what they're going to do is they're going to count any forbearance that was taken for 12 months or more at a time or 36 months cumulative, they're going to count both of those um, scenarios as time in repayment towards forgiveness. So Mm -hmm. I mentioned all of this for IDR forgiveness, but they've also clarified that all of this is happening for PSLF as well. So, and in most cases, it's going to be automatic. So there's a lot, not a lot that bars have to worry about, which is really nice. Um, But for someone who maybe still has other types of federal loans, like the old Fell loans, um, which were prior to 2010, um, or Perkins loans. Those are still federal loans, but they don't qualify for this particular um, forgiveness. So they would have to consolidate. And if they do so by May 1st of 2023, then they will be included in this one-time account adjustment. So that's a really important date for those borrowers, and they can Mm -hmm. consolidate on studentaid.gov. And so I would say anyone who's working towards PSLF but hasn't submitted a PSLF form, which is kind of the the annual application that you need to do, if you didn't do so during the limited waiver, I would do so now or at least by the springtime. That way, once your payment counts are adjusted in July through this one-time account adjustment, it'll have as much information as as they need to, to give you a really good updated payment count for, um, so you you know how much longer you have until forgiveness. Um, Mm -hmm. And the PSLF form can be generated um, through the PSLF help tool on studentaid.gov slash PSLF. Mm -hmm. Good. Anything else that borrowers should be doing now? Yeah. So I would say they should take a moment to confirm what type of loans they have and who is servicing them. There's been a lot of changes this past year for federal loans. So I would log into studentaid.gov with your FSA ID, um, username and password, review each loan, confirm the servicer, the loan type, the amount. Um, for those who do have a new servicer and aren't set up with them yet, you know, create an account on their website. Make sure your contact information is up to date, not only with your servicer and studentaid.gov. Um, while you're there on studentaid.gov, use the loan simulator to estimate monthly payments so you can start planning. Um, and remember that federal loans under the loan pause are still set to 0% interest. So any payment now is going to go towards the principal balance. So for those that aren't using income-driven repayment plans, it'll bring... Um, well, either way, it's going to bring your principal down lower. So if your payment, if you're using the standard plan or the graduated plan or any of the other plans that are based on, you know, balance and interest rate and all that, 
um, reducing your principal could potentially reduce your monthly payment once that's going to be recalculated once final once loans finally go into repayment. So it'll save you interest over time. It'll help you make your repayment more manageable. Um, so if you can tackle it during this time, you know we have extra time again. So take take the make the most of this time, make it a priority. Uh, but also if you have higher interest rate debt like credit cards, use the time to tackle those. That way, once once student loans do go into repayment, it's going to happen at some point. They are going to go back into repayment. Um, the, it'll give you a little less stress uh, once that time does come. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Thank you for such, I mean, honestly, truly such an important in date, update, I mean, that, that impacts so many people. So thank Anytime. you. All right, so now we're going to take a short break. And when we return, I'll be talking with Tova about early results. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Tova. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Sally. Glad to be here. So while we're recording this a few days earlier, um, this will be released on December 15th, which is a very auspicious day for high school seniors. Hi, Sally. (laughs) Not that this has been dominating our lives at all. Um, So anyway, yes, early decisions were released. Some apparently already came out. Today's Mm -hmm. the 7th and we've already got some out. Um, But generally speaking, they're all going to be out by the 15th. So we want to help students figure out now what? So I was thinking we would start with early decision and we should probably define what early decision is for people who are juniors, et cetera, Mm -hmm. parents of juniors. So let's say a student applied early decision. What does that mean? And what do they need to be thinking about now? Sure. Early decision emphasis on the word decision uh, as opposed to early action means that they have committed themselves to attend that institution if admitted. It's signing a contract with the school that says, if you admit me, I will attend. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I've done my research. I've uh, talked about finances with my family. My guidance counselor, my school counselor knows. Everyone has signed off. If admitted, I will attend. So you can't tell that to two schools, right? Because what if two schools tell you yes? So you've only told one school uh, that you're, you're in if they accept you. Uh, so for that student, it, it's a 
a pretty big uh, commitment at that time. Not right for every student, but that's probably mm-hmm. a conversation for a different time. Yeah, definitely for a different time. But so what if those students get in? Yeah, they're they're done. They yeah. have about 24 hours. Uh, I don't think anyone's sitting there with a stopwatch, but the expectation is that immediately within a day or so, they notify any other college that they have submitted applications to already to say, hey, just joking, I'd like to withdraw my application. I got in early decision to my first choice school. Thank you so much. Wanted to get you that information before you accidentally wasted an admit on me or spent time reviewing my application. Mm -hmm. Every college will be glad to receive that in writing in an email and no hard feelings will be had. They Mm -hmm. also need to confirm back to that school, even though they've already signed a contract saying they will attend, they need to formally accept the offer submit whatever deposit information the school is asking for and check any enrollment box. Uh, The the admit letter would come with instructions of what that admitting institution is looking for from them. But the expectation is that some immediate action would be taken. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, withdrawing from all their other schools that they've already applied to. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. And I'll just put in a little note that the only reason that sometimes these this commitment can be foregone as if a financial aid offer was not what you expected. And Mm -hmm. I should say what you realistically expected. Right. If you just kind of go, what, I didn't get scholarships and it was a college that doesn't offer scholarships, then you haven't done your research, you know? So I want to like put into place the research, but there are times when sometimes it's a few thousands less than maybe you realistically thought. And then you can go to the financial aid office and talk to the admission office and kind of get all that sorted out. But right. No one's dragging you there under duress, but the expectation is that a good faith, genuine commitment was made. You've done your research, you've used their net price calculator, you have a reasonable expectation. And certainly if any sort of circumstance were to dramatically change and the student had the best of intentions, schools would release students from this commitment. Uh, But the expectation is that, again, that research has been done, the commitment is genuine, uh, and that it's an earnest uh, decision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So what if a student who applied early decision is deferred? What's deferred, Sally? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can I answer that one, please? Yes. (laughs) At the front of the class. (laughs) So you know what? Let's broaden with us. If it would be all right with you. Uh, Can we broaden this one to also include early action students? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So early action for the students who have also applied early but have made no commitment. They've just gotten their paperwork done. The school has this opportunity to apply early with no binding uh, contract. Um, A defer is the same for either student. What it means is we've read your application. We're not ready to make a decision on it. Uh, a couple of different reasons. Maybe we're just literally not ready. We've gotten too many applications and we didn't get to all of them. That That's not so common that, and that you're not going to know that that's why. Usually what it is, is that they need more information about their larger applicant pool. It's You can read between the lines and understand you're not at the very top of their class or you would have been admitted, but you're also very much still in the running or you would have been denied. There are very few schools out there that will um, not deny applicants in early rounds. Usually, it's one of three decisions. I'm assuming we'll get to deny in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But 
defer essentially means we're pushing you down to the regular pool. We're going to reevaluate your application come January, February, when we get the rest of our applicants. So we can see what the rest of the pool looks like. How strong are you compared to that larger pool? Maybe also what new information you can send us. Maybe they don't just need more information about their pool. They want to see how you've progressed. Maybe they want to see more senior year grades. Maybe you've been on a dramatic upward trend. Ninth was a little rocky. Tenth got better. Eleventh was better even yet. And they want to see, hey, is is 12th grade your best year yet? Or are you going back down? Mm -hmm. Uh, So things like that, other updates. And um, basically, they'll evaluate you again in the regular pool. You'll get your decision. If you had signed the binding early decision contract, you're released from that binding agreement at that point. You're no longer obligated to attend if admitted later in March. Uh, Early action, you were never obligated, and you would then get your decision later on in March. Mm -hmm. I do want to, It's this one is tricky, but I do like to warn students at the most selective colleges that if they were deferred from early decision, their odds of getting in are pretty low at that, even lower than they were before. It is tricky though. Cause like yeah. when I worked at Reed college, if you were deferred from early decision, it really could have been because we wanted to see more good grades, right? Like it, but, sure. but if you're deferred at some of these other schools, sometimes it's just their inability to kind of really make a decision. Yeah. I'd say our favorite answer. It depends. Yeah. Uh, so I worked at four very different schools ranging dramatically in selectivity um, at the most select, one of the one that was 5% acceptance rate, yeah, is slim chances, but you also would have been outright denied if you had no shot. Right. Um, at the like 12 to 15% selective school, you were absolutely going to be given a second careful read. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we needed to see not just the larger applicant pool, but your high school pool. Uh, you had a full other day in court. And at the moderately selective school, like the 48, 49% selectivity, you had, we just really weren't sure. You were right in the middle and it could go either way. You had a mm-hmm. solid know, 50-ish percent chance of, of being considered. Mm-hmm. And then the school that I worked at that was not selective, if you were pretty much college ready, we would let you, it was really just a pause and you were almost certainly going to get in. We just needed to make sure we didn't overcommit scholarship dollars and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it really ranged, but I would agree with you at the most highly selective level, you know, the, the tiny few percent of schools out there that are admitting fewer than 10% of their students, that's probably true. But I will argue and push back that you do still have a shot. It might be a small shot, but it, you, you know, we, we talked a lot about ripping the bandaid for mm-hmm. a student who, uh, you know, in committee where we're like, the student is not going to get in. We're not doing them a favor by deferring them. Let's just rip the bandaid now. And some felt like, well, we want to, give them a good job and add a boy and, and be encouraging. And there were different schools of thought on that. But for the most part, if the school committee felt strongly, there's no chance of this happening come regular decision, you would be outright denied. Yeah. I have to say when I worked in admissions, I wanted to give them an attaboy and let them mm-hmm. know that they were taken seriously. <laughs> yeah. Once I was a high school counselor and I saw like that it actually did damage, not right. right. I was like, I'm like all for, I mean, like Stanford is kind of famous for just ripping off that bandaid, like deny, deny, deny early. Yeah, and as painful as it on. is, it lets the student move on. So yeah. 
Yeah. So that is another, so that kind of brings us to our last one. Like if you're denied, what does that mean? Sometimes students think, oh, I can reapply, right? No, not that year. You're done. That's your decision for the year. I mean, Mm -hmm. most importantly, and obviously, if you think about it, what will have changed in two, three months? They, They will have evaluated your application with the information you have presented. What new information do you have to share two months later that's going to dramatically change your profile? Uh, so that is your decision for the year. I don't know of a school that that would allow you to reapply. Appeals are different. Um, mm-hmm. If you're denied, that's your that's your decision for the year. But you can take a moment to be disappointed and let your ego feel bruised, and then let it go and realize, you know what? I had a balanced list. I had other schools that I I like that I'm I know I'm getting in, and maybe this one was a long shot. And let's not panic and. Um, disappointment is different from despair and let it, let it go. And we can have a whole nother podcast episode Mm on getting over the deny. And right. (laughs) Yeah. We're actually doing that in January. So (laughs) that one's coming up. right? So because yeah, because if you're going for those highly selective colleges, that is the thing. Um, You know, you've, you've, I mean, generally speaking, honestly, with them, my goal, my recommendation, if you're applying to these schools at the highest level of selectivity is give it your best shot, go big, and then just assume you won't get in because based on the odds, you're not going to. And this is, I'm obviously saying this to everyone. This is not a personal comment to any one student. I'm not saying you're not good enough. I'm saying with a 4% or 3% admit rate, nobody can be sure. Like like it is long odds for absolutely everybody. So you need to just assume you're not going to get in. One Um, of our colleagues has the best metaphor. The weatherman is calling for a 95% chance of rain. Why are you expecting it to be sunny? Right. Right. <laughs> and I love that. You're like, yeah, you can be disappointed if it rains, but I mean, you kind of should have had an umbrella with you. Right. 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 So, um, you know, I also like to remind students not to panic and start uh, rapidly applying to a million other schools in those last week or two of December. Take a beat. Look at your list. Where else have you applied already or were, did you have ready to go? that you can count on how, where did this school fall on your list? Was this school a far reach? Was it what you had categorized with your, with the advice of your school counselor, a likely school and should you reevaluate? But if this school was a reach, this is not a reason to panic and Mm -hmm. uh, to just take a beat. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that before where like a student of mine didn't get into Duke early and suddenly wanted to apply to more safeties. And I said, remember, we planned for this. Yeah. These are your safeties already. And she was like, oh, okay. Like like, this says nothing about your ability to get into these other schools. This is just this one school with a 4% admit rate or whatever Duke (laughs) is. It's very low. So, um, all right. Any other things that students should think about now that early admission I mean, I think we've gone over, um, yeah, admitted, deferred, denied, EA versus ED in all situations. I guess I'll just throw in, um, you know, there are some public schools, some state schools. I haven't seen this at private, but maybe it exists, where if you submit, um, like, let's say you've been admitted early rolling or early, if you deposit and put in your housing deposit earlier, you can get better housing. So that mm-hmm. might be a reason to sometimes deposit earlier, mm-hmm. but know that if you change your mind, you're going to lose that deposit then right. probably. Yeah. Um, and while, you know, our, we want our students to make their best good faith effort to only ever deposit at one school, 
mm-hmm. if a school's putting you in a tricky spot of saying, hey, you're not likely to get housing if you don't commit, that's kind of on that school and mm-hmm. that's not on 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 you and the student. Exactly. Um, do we have time to talk about uh, what to do if deferred or is um, no need to, to get into that right now? Save that for a different segment. Um, that's for a different segment, I think. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we'll, um, if you're but, admitted, I forgot to add celebrate, jump up and down, but like be respectful of your peers who maybe didn't, you know, mm-hmm. don't necessarily go screaming running through your hallways. Yes. But, but do jump in, up and down and celebrate. That's exciting. Celebrate with your parents, celebrate yeah. with other students who you know got in someplace, right. but be gentle around your fellow students. And actually, I'll just say we will be, we should be talking about it again later, but we have blog posts on what to do if you're deferred. So if you uh, go yes. to blog.getintocollege.com, mm-hmm. um, you can look up what to do if you're deferred because there are some good steps Great to take. Great steps there, yeah. Uh, okay. No action needed in December. Yeah. Just enjoy your winter break. Take a break. Eat your <laughs> ice cream, eat your turkey or whatever it might be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tova. Always my pleasure, Sally. All right, everyone. We'll take a short break and then we'll be welcoming Anne from Boston University. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sally. It's really great to be here today. And I like it that you've got the Boston University pennant in the background. So that's very good. (laughs) Exactly. Represent, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been at BU for almost... 30 years. So it's a place that's near and dear to my heart for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually that's perfect. Cause I was just going to ask you to introduce yourself. I mean, I kind of did a little intro at the beginning, but please give the, your background in admissions. Sure. Um, so my name is Ann Corvo. I'm the director of international admissions at Boston university, and we're a very international place. So it makes sense. We have a director for undergraduate uh, international admissions. Um, I have worked uh, in many areas of international education. I've worked at, in the, on the residence life side, um, but mostly in, in enrollment. Um, so selection and those sorts of things, which is great because I get to meet students and families, uh, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. 
Mm -hmm. And what we'll be talking about today will be relevant both domestically as well as for international students. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Great. So let's do a quick summary. I mean, you mentioned how near and dear BU is to your heart. What are what's like a quick summary of things students should know about BU? Sure. I, I think, you know, I'm very aware that the students and families listening are looking at a lot of great places, right? And, you know, with over 3,000 tertiary institutions in the U.S., you have a lot of options. And then you include all over the world, quite frankly, Canada, a lot of great places. So I just want to highlight things that I think are special about BU. So when you end this podcast, I hope that the students and families will maybe have four things four sort of nuggets that they can put in their pocket and say, all right, that's a BU thing. Um, and, and the first for me, and it won't surprise you since you know what I do okay, in my focus area, is um, really the international kind of component, you know, this being a global university. I think that's important for, for students in the U.S. to know about and students abroad to know about. So I know that a lot of schools will say we're really international, but I want to tell you why I think it's distinctive and a little different at BU. So we we have one of the largest numbers of international students. Um, we rank seventh in the country. So already you know that the kind of students you're going to be around at a place like us, they're going to be from, you know, you're going to might have a kid from Sao Paulo on one side of you, you know, and a kid from LA on the other, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of place. Um, So I think you need to be comfortable in that diversity, that global diversity. Um, But having international students doesn't make you global. That's uh, sort of an inbound component. And when you think global, you have to, to really be global, you have to be, you have to have a reciprocity with the world. You have to have an exchange. Um, BU was the first collegiate study abroad program a hundred years ago. We asked wow. our students. I know we asked our students to think outside. I don't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, before it was cool. Um, <laughs> we asked our students to think outside of Boston. We thought that was important a hundred years mm-hmm. ago. And so this idea that we have one of the oldest and largest study abroad, you know, means that our domestic students are excited by that global exchange and our international students, you know, well, if you're at BU, the world is there with you, you can also explore the world. And I love that. Hundreds of globally themed courses infused in our curriculum, and then a network of alumni and research and internships that, again, expand the globe. You're not really limited to the BU Boston experience. So I think that's exciting. And I think that's a differentiator. Mm -hmm. Um, The other piece I would mention, Sally, is speaking of diversity, is the breadth of programs. Again, a lot of schools have a lot of great programs. So let me, let's say what's different about BU, it's the flexibility amid the 300 programs. So if uh, if students out there are looking at large research universities like us, we have about 16,000 undergrads, you're going to find that you're applying to schools within a school And sometimes those have strict confines around them. So you might, so the reason I say this is because I think it's important for you to know that BU is a very flexible place. Um, If you come in and study psychology in the College of Arts and Sciences, you are welcome and encouraged to take classes in Questrom School of Business or Sergeant Health and Rehabilitation Sciences or the College of Fine Arts. So, you know, when, when our president, Dr. Brown came from MIT, over a decade ago, he said, that's the BU advantage, this idea that you can really explore and let's really take those walls down between the schools and colleges and let students have an experience of breadth and, you know, sort of with the undercurrent of the liberal arts, 
that will really allow them to be transformed. So, and I just want to amplify that yeah. you're saying that too, because I always have to warn students, just because XYZ school has incredible fine arts doesn't mean you'll have access to it to taking classes if it's not your major, like be aware. And often the bigger the school, the the, the harder those walls are, the more impermeable they are. So this is very notable and important, I think. So I'm glad you, you brought it up. Yeah, thanks. That's such a great point. Thanks for reinforcing that. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the, so international, highly flexible, lots of programs. The other piece that, again, I think puts us in a different kind of level um, is our level of research. Um, students and families out there listening will not know if I say we're an AAU school, they might say, so what? Um, an AAU, American Association of Universities, is, is really an invitation only about 60 universities that are identified as the highest level of research in North America. We're a member of that. And, and that's a prestige. And you don't get it just because, okay, sure, we have great graduate research and sure, you know, I don't know, $500 million in, in research funding. But you can't just be invited for that alone. You have to have a strong undergraduate research program. So mm -hmm. those of you out there listening that are excited by research, whether that's researching Bitcoin, you know, I've seen that on, our, you know, as an opportunity, um, you know, zebrafish, uh, looking at genetics, um, foreign language, um, how people acquire learning. I mean, you name it, it's, it's offered at the undergrad level. Some are funded, some are not, even for undergrads. So we actually have reserve funding for this program. So it's the Undergraduate Research Opportunities Program. And that's a piece I think does differentiate us, that level of, of experiential learning that is at like, I mean, contributing to new knowledge level, like mm -hmm. you know, kind of level. Um, and then I think the last of my four kind of highlights would be being urban, but being residential. And again, a lot of schools can say that, but very few in urban settings like a Boston or a big name, you know, fill in the blank big city can guarantee housing for four years. Mm -hmm. That's a commitment that the university has invested greatly in because we believe in residential learning. We believe that, look, you think about this. You've got students from more than 100 countries. You've got them studying 300 majors. This is living and learning 24-7 and you put them all together and most students live on campus, that's an exciting place to be. So it, it, to me, that's another differentiator, that commitment to residential learning that is demonstrated through, you know, the kind of housing that we have for our students in an urban. And, you know, we were talking, you know, you know where we're located and, yeah. and we are very much in the city. So yeah. um, those are the highlights. Yep. Yeah, Boston University is actually in a very fun neighborhood and more than just Boston University students want to live there. So um, mm -hmm. I will highlight that. I, um, you know, there's not much of a campus. If you want a traditional campus, that's yeah. not BU. But if you're looking for that middle of the city kind of uh, situation, wow, what a great opportunity. Um, Absolutely. I would add to that. That's a great point. We are, we are unashamedly urban. You are not wrong. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that we are contiguous. So our buildings are not, you know, just all over the city of Boston. Some urban uh, universities do look mm -hmm. like that. That's not us. We are long and skinny. <laughs> We're a long linear line, sort of forced to be so because of the Charles River that mm -hmm. flanks one side of us and the T, which is the subway 
system in the city of Boston runs right down that spine of that long linear line. So while we're not a campus, we are a community that you feel when you're in that area for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's move on to now that we've gotten students all excited about Boston <laughs> University. Um, this this uh, show is coming out on the 15th, so they'll have two weeks to get their application in, right? Yay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's talk about the supplemental questions. Boston University uses the Common App, has for yep. a long time. Yep. Um, and the question that is required for everyone is, what about being a student at Boston University most excites you? So let's talk a little bit about like, should students try and be super original here? Like, like, should they send you cookies and like wrap, <laughs> wrap, you know, um, the essay around the cookies? Like, what should students do here? Oh, <laughs> and I'm you. being a little, I'm, I'm, yes, intentionally trying to be humorous because that is not what students should be doing. Absolutely, what a great question. So, I, and I just want to back up and say that the essay honestly, is my favorite part of the application. So, and I just want to say the general essay, which is not your question, but I want to back up to that because I expect that to be, you know, I'm I'm not naive. That's going to a number of schools, mm-hmm. right? Like that's highly manicured. That's been edited. Mm-hmm. Everybody and their uncle has looked at that, right? You know, so I have very different expectations around that one, but the YBU essay I feel is just for me, right? Mm-hmm. It's It's only for me. So I, I would just say that it's if you think BU, 82,000 applicants, they never read that. They probably don't waste their time. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, you are making a big mistake mm-hmm. <laughs> because we do look at that and it becomes so important because it is so unique to us. So how what are good ones and sort of what are bad ones, if you will, or how would, how would I approach mm-hmm. that as a student? I, I don't mean to be flip, but I know a lot about BU. I've just told you I've been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think regurgitating the website, um, BU, one of the top hosts of international students. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong. That's true. But here's what I want to happen in that essay. I want you to, to say what excites you. But if I don't learn more about you in that, in other words, so what is that? So, okay, we're one, we're one of the hosts. But what does that mean to you? Why does that excite you? So there's got to me a beautiful YBU essay is the intersection between what BU offers and what you love and that that marriage, if you will, that fit where they intersect, right? So I love when a student maybe adds their own experience and then and that's why that piece of BU, I love that. Sometimes students dig in and look at course content and say, you know what, I'm really interested in studying psychology and I see you have these different areas of focus you know you can tell they've been thoughtful but it's about them more than it's just about BU so mm-hmm. that's that's to me an elevated YBU essay so yeah I think that's I tell a students question. I tell students it's not their job to write ad copy you know that you it, as you said you already know about BU yeah. they don't need to tell you about BU they need to tell you about why they like BU Absolutely. I love that. Don't write ad copy. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, please do. It seems to get through sometimes to students who are like, I don't know what they want. Like, they want to know why you like it. Why do you like it? You know? Yeah. And I realize, yeah. And I realize the challenge, right, is we say, yep, and you have 250 words. You know, mm-hmm. I, I see mm-hmm. that, right? So we're asking you to be concise. We're asking you to be thoughtful. I think the families listening today, the students listening today are going to do a 
great YBU. Why? Because they've invested their time in listening to this, hopefully maybe mm -hmm. getting something from what I shared and maybe something resonated mm -hmm. and maybe they'll go to the website and he, she said, research. I, I, I didn't realize. Let me dig. Ooh, mm -hmm. look at this research. That matches me perfectly. I'm going to address that in my YBU. Like that's, that's what I hope is, is, you know, really the result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tell students stop writing in the third person, use the I, I'm really excited about X, Y, Z. That's what they want to know. Um, Got it. so yeah. All right. And then you have an optional and I want to stress that I think really here optional means optional, right? Like a lot, often students are stressed yeah. out that optional doesn't really mean optional. Um, <laughs> but this is truly optional and I'll just read it. You probably have it memorized, but it said additional information. Please use this space if, and this is a big if, you don't have to do this. Nope. You have additional information, materials, or writing samples you would like us to consider. So what are some good examples of when you thought, oh, students really made a good use of this space? And are there well, examples of when you thought this student probably felt like they had to, but didn't really need to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. That is, um, first of all, I want to put you, you you said it well. I mean, I think students shouldn't feel compelled to do that. Like, oh, a space, I should fill it. Mm -hmm. not, not really. I think this is if something is unusual in your circumstance that you think might be missed in how we, maybe it didn't come through in your, in, you know, you don't want it to be the topic of your essay, but it's something you'd like the admissions committee to know. Often those are not lengthy. They're just really highlighting something specific. So a good use of that I've seen, oh gosh, I've seen it used in, in a myriad of ways. Um, everything from talking about a personal circumstance that had them shifting in some way. Um, I, I love when students use that space to kind of own something and tell some sort of, you know, let me just say we don't expect students to be perfect, right? Like mm -hmm. ever. And so I think when students kind of own an experience that maybe didn't show their best, whether that's academic or otherwise, I think is a good use of that space. Mm -hmm. And again, not lengthy necessarily. So yeah, it is yeah. very open. Yeah. 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 A classic example that I would use is like, I've worked with students who were diagnosed fairly late with learning disabilities, you know, so I worked with one student, very, very smart young man, but because of his learning disability, pretty severe ADD was smart enough that he masked it for a long time, but finally in his sophomore year got tested and his grades shot from B's and C's to A's, like all A's once he was diagnosed. Um, and so I, you know, obviously I was actually his high school counselor at this time. So obviously I addressed it in the letter, but I also said, why don't you just write a brief statement, but don't use it for your main essay. Like you can write about anything for your main essay. I mean, unless for some reason it's compelling to you, you can use this extra information spot to put in something like that. Um, and, and, you know, that's what he did. And I was so happy that the colleges were very understanding. They all kind of said, okay, his 11th grade grades are really what is relevant here. Exactly. And that adds, like you're saying, that that's helping us have contact, that that mm -hmm. piece of information, whether it's coming from the counselor or from the student or from both. I kind of find that always really helpful, right? When the counselor says something like in your the case you mm -hmm. just shared and the student shares equally on their own in their own voice. It's mm -hmm. great. It can also be, though, I'm guessing like maybe a student is a poet. I mean, I want to be very clear that like I am not recommending a student who's never written poetry before decide to write a poem for Boston University. But somebody who has a particular passion, like a true talent, maybe would you be open to them sharing that? 
Sure, and students do, and sometimes they attach them as what we call other documents, and sometimes they come through in that space. Mm-hmm. Y- you're right. Students have things that that just somehow the common application isn't satisfying, right? They they have mm-hmm. more to share, and that's very ap- appropriate. I think the one thing I would say is when you're applying to a place like BU, um, be be thoughtful about how many and what you do. Make it that you know, that one thing rather than like a host of things, because you don't want us to skim through. Like, let's say you're a great poet in your case, and you give me 20 poems, but really you have one you think is is most illustrative of of your work. That would be better because I'm going to, I don't have time to read all of them, but if you give me one, yay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So be thoughtful about that, I think depending on who you're applying to. Yeah, yeah. And again, don't feel like you have to fill the space. If you're not a poet, this is not the time to start. It's just, it's really not. Like lean in and and try and look objectively and think carefully about does, has, have my best qualities already been highlighted? Not necessarily according to my parents who want the whole world to know what a sweet young man I am, (laughs) right? But like objectively, was I able to encapsulate my activities in the application already, et cetera? If that's the case, then you don't need to use this area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, So let's, we have like two minutes left. So I don't know if you want to give us like a kind of core summary of anything that's new that you want to highlight. Absolutely happy to. I think if anyone out there has been on our campus lately, you probably saw a building that made you very curious. (laughs) This is what's new at BU. Um, We're really excited. So actually, just what's today? I think tomorrow is its like official opening of this building. But anyway, Mm -hmm. if you walked on our campus, you would see right in the center of our campus, um, a high rock, 19 story it looks, it's not your typical building. That's why I keep saying you'd notice it. It almost looks like if you guys ever play Jenga, it looks like that. It's like it's like levels that are sort of off each other a little bit, like a, a stack of books that's off its kilter. Um, that is our Center for Computing and Data Science. Hmm. So this is really exciting. So it's a new undergraduate major. It just, I think our first, yes, our first class is literally just finishing their first semester. Um, the building is sort of right on the tail end of it. As I said, the building is just opening up. It is an incredible uh, architecturally. Okay, it's you know it's the it's the only it's the largest fossil free building in Boston. Like so, we invested in sustainability with this building. Impressive. Okay, all those things, but it is you know d- for those of you that don't know, data science is really an exciting area of study right now. Um, you know, think about data is everywhere. And so and the, I'm really sorry, I have to cut you off, but this yeah. is super exciting. And they should absolutely look it up on your website. I'm guessing sure. you have the plans there. So thank you so much. Um, and I just want to say to everyone listening, you should definitely join us for next week's show on December 22nd, when host Ian Fisher will be talking with guests about how to use the common data set an incredible resource on colleges and universities in the U.S. and the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Outlook Handbook. Remember also that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website and also um, you know, through our uh, website, blog.getintocollege.com. Um, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. 
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.